Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Ephesians chapter 6? Just in case you're new with us, we have been working our way through the book of Ephesians here at Calvary on Sunday morning. And we just finished a section in chapter 5 from verses 22 to 33, a section that we called God's Design for a Spirit-Filled Marriage. And we called it that because it's really built on Paul's admonition in verse 18 that God's people are to be continually, and I'm quoting now from the literal Greek, continually being filled with the Holy Spirit. Of course, that filling of the Spirit empowers us to live the life that God wants us to live, but in the Greek, the word, therefore, being filled with the Spirit implies control. So there's an element of surrender that also gets into that concept of what it means to be filled with the Spirit. We surrender to the Spirit's control, and He then empowers us to live the life that He wants us to live. After Paul now is finished addressing the responsibility of husbands and wives to obey God's command to them individually in marriage, well, Paul then continues in the first four verses of chapter 6 by admonishing children to obey their parents, and then addressing the responsibility of fathers, yes, but we'll include mothers in that, in the bringing up of their children. We are calling this section, Ephesians 6, 1 through 4, God's design for a spirit-filled family. And you may have guessed that we won't actually get into verses 1 through 4 today. We'll just lay some groundwork, which is important for the context, all right? But as we have already pointed out in this series, the family is the basic building block of society. If Satan can destroy the family, and he usually does, does that by attacking and destroying marriages, but if Satan can destroy the, the family, he can, he can destroy that society. He hates America. We were a nation founded on God's word. We have turned our backs on God for the most part. But for many years, for two centuries, we were a light to the world. To, to pick up where Israel left off, they were also called by God to be a light to the world. We'll talk more about them at the end of the study. But Satan has always hated this country, a country that was built upon the motto, in God we trust. And so he has sought from the beginning to destroy this nation. And he is doing it today by destroying marriages so that families are crumbling and in the process the fabric of society is coming undone. Today, and I'm sure I don't have to tell you this, Christian couples are experiencing Tremendous, tremendous pressures in marriage over a variety of issues. Uh, debt is the number one issue that usually brings down marriages. Uh, right now, we have a lot of people that have lost their jobs because of the economy, and so uh, they're using credit cards to buy food and, and different things. And I, I understand how that works, but it does allow the devil to bring into your marriage a lot of pressure. When the bills come in and you can't pay those bills, that's a source of conflict. Of course, there are many other sources of conflict that have come into marriages today. Christian marriages, I'm thinking of primarily. But one thing I want to stress right now, don't ever discount the spiritual element to the conflict in your marriages. I think a lot of Christians overlook this. There, there is a spiritual component that many times they overlook with regard to conflict especially marital conflict. As we're going to read in chapter 6, when we get to verse 12, Paul said, For we do not wrestle or fight against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, 
against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. In other words, Paul is saying our struggles are really not with each other. They are spiritual in nature. Now, of course, we become willing pawns and participants in the devil's attempt to destroy our marriages through our own selfishness and pride. That is true. We cannot blame the devil for our failed marriages. But, as Paul said, we must not be ignorant of his devices either. You have to know how he works. How does he work? Well, primarily, Jesus outlined it in Mark 3, verse 25. He said, and let me paraphrase a little bit, if a house, and I'll add, or a marriage, is divided against itself, that house or marriage cannot stand. The devil's strategy has always been to divide and conquer because he knows their strength in unity. And if a family or a church or a nation is unified, the devil is not going to be able to bring those groups down. It's interesting how that in the last days, Jesus said that kingdom would rise against kingdom. The Greek word for kingdom is ethnos. We get our word ethnic from that Greek word. Jesus seems to be telling us that in the last days, there will be a lot of ethnic tensions. And this would really be fueled by the devil to divide nations against one another so that he could bring them down. We're seeing it in our own country. So his strategy has always been divide and conquer. And again, this war that we are facing as Christians, especially with regard to marriage, is not with each other. It's with the devil and his demons. But I want to say this to you. In any war, there is a certain percentage of casualties that come as a result of friendly fire. See, every soldier knows that sometimes in the heat of battle, friends can be mistaken for enemies. And when that happens, the results can be devastating. And unfortunately, when we talk about spiritual warfare, the same thing is true. There are many casualties in the body of Christ that are the result of friendly fire. And by that I mean people who are supposed to be on the same side fighting together against the real enemy often find themselves, you know, fighting each other, taking shots at one another, wounding and hurting those that are supposed to be allies and not enemies. And how true this is in marriage. You know, in Ephesians 6, when Paul reminded us that our real struggles are not with each other, but with principalities and powers, you know, the hosts of wickedness in the spirit realm, he did so directly on the heels of his teaching on marriage and family. And I don't know about you, but that says to me that the bulk of spiritual warfare that we could expect to face as Christians is going to be directed at our marriages and our families. Again, if he can destroy marriages and families, he can destroy churches, because that's all a church is. It's just made up of families. And he can ultimately destroy a nation. And that's why I say that Satan is, yes, unleashed an enormous amount of pressure, an enormous onslaught against husband and wife relationships. But you know what? His purpose is not just to destroy the marriage, but he's trying to get at the children as well, especially children in Christian homes, because he knows that they're the next generation that's going to bring the gospel to the world. So if he can destroy the kids now, well, he can keep them from being a light then. And again, the primary way Satan will get to the children is through the parents. For if Satan attacks the husband and wife relationship, the indirect effect is that the children also suffer a great deal in the process. And we're seeing it today all around us, aren't we? We are seeing the disintegration of the family and the effect it's having on kids and so on. 
you might be interested to knowing that only 7% of Americans live in what used to be called in my generation the traditional family. Only 7% of Americans live in what, was, what used to be called the traditional family unit, where the father was the breadwinner and went out there and worked and, to supply for his family, family's needs, and the mother was a, the homemaker who stayed home and raised the children. 7% of Americans now have that situation in their lives. It's a dramatic statistic indicating that we have moved a long way away from God's design for the family. In fact, several years ago, Newsweek magazine put out a special issue devoted solely to the American family. And in that issue, the article that kind of launched the issue or introduced it, uh, the writer had this to say, and I quote, The American family, traditionally speaking, does not exist. Rather, we are creating many American families of diverse style and shapes in unprecedented numbers. Our families are unlike. We have fathers working while mothers keep house, fathers and mothers both working away from the home, single parents, second marriages bringing children together from unrelated backgrounds, childless couples, married couples with and without children. We have all kinds of families, end quote. And that's very true, isn't it? In fact, it's getting harder and harder to try to define what the family is today, especially because some people say whatever grouping of people you have that want to call themselves a family, that's fine with us. Well, God created the family, and he doesn't feel that way, that anything goes. God has designed a marriage to look one way, and the family that that marriage produces to look one way. It's getting harder and harder, though, to define what a family really is. In fact, several years ago, Pastor David Jeremiah gave a message entitled, The Cleavers Don't Live Here Anymore. Now, if you're a young person, you're thinking the cleavers, don't, what, like a meat cleaver? No, no, uh, you know, leave it to beaver. That's my day, all right? The cleavers, the cleavers don't live here anymore. And here's what Pastor Jeremiah said in that message, and I quote, There used to be a little thing we learned when we were growing up, a little couplet that went like this. First comes love, then comes marriage, then comes Mary with a baby carriage. Remember that, he said? Well, now there's a sequel. John and Mary break up. John moves in with Sally and her two boys. Mary takes the baby, Paul, and a year later, Mary meets Jack, who is divorced with three children, and they get married. And Paul, barely two years old, now has a mother, a father, a stepmother, a stepfather, five stepbrothers and stepsisters, as well as four sets of grandparents, biological and step, and countless aunts and uncles. And now guess what? Mary is pregnant again, and there will be another child in this blended family, end quote. Now, you might be thinking, well, what's your point? Well, the point is I'm not passing judgment on it or trying to condemn anybody that finds themselves in a family situation similar to that. I'm just saying the family in the last generation or so has come under great attack by the devil. It's not that God doesn't love all these blended families. Of course he does. But they bring a lot of stress into people's lives. Kids are confused when you have all these parents, and that's only if you have one marriage and divorce and remarriage. I mean, some kids, their parents have been married and divorced three or four times. It's a mess. And that's all I'm trying to say, is that marriage and family are under great attack today. And as a society, we have moved a long way away from God's design for family. 
And again, Satan will use whatever he can to destroy a family. I mean, he first of all tries to disrupt it by getting parents to argue and fight incessantly. Maybe it's over her spending or his internet porn problem or something else. See, the devil doesn't want your families, your homes to be a place where the kids are nurtured and trained in the ways of the Lord. He wants to keep it an emotional war zone where people are always yelling and fighting and throwing things maybe, and there's always conflict. Because in that environment, those kids will never grow up to be the well-adjusted, godly people. I'm not saying that God can't still work a miracle. He can. But I'm saying in general, for non-Christian homes especially, that with all that conflict, arguing and yelling, it's very difficult for kids to grow up and be well-adjusted. In fact, in an article that I found written, by an 11, written about an 11-year-old child, who lived in such an environment where his mom and dad were always fighting and yelling and there was a hatred and just all this tension. He tried to commit suicide by slashing his wrists. They got to him in time. And when the uh, police who interviewed the young boy after he was taken to the hospital and said, why did you want to commit suicide? Here's what he said, and I quote. He said, I just want to go to heaven, he sobbed. I can't stand these stomach aches and being unhappy. If I could only die, I, it's hard to live. It's, living is horrible. I just want to die because nobody cares. So I just want to die, end quote. Now, that's just one example we're talking about. I'm wondering how many thousands of children across this country feel the same way. And is this one of the reasons why the suicide rate among children has skyrocketed in the last 10 or 20 years? why kids are even making suicide packs. And I realize there are other issues going on. I'm not trying to lay this all at the doorstep of couples that are having marital problems. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying things have changed in this society. But not only is the suicide rate going up among young people, but also is the delinquency rate. I mean, delinquency today is increasing seven times faster than the population. You realize that? Is it any wonder why Paul said in the last days children would be disobedient to parents? The question is, why do we have so many children and young people so rebellious? What is the deal? Why are so many kids so rebellious today? Well, I think a big part of it is too many parents are not there to discipline them. They're working too many hours away from the home. They're not there to discipline the kids like they need to when they do something wrong. They're not taking their responsibility as parents to train their children in the ways of God seriously. And so you have this epidemic uh, that, uh, you know, we see in our society today. Parents, you know, are either not at home to discipline the kids or when they come home, for whatever reason, they don't want to discipline them either. either. Maybe it's guilt because they were gone, are gone so many hours a week. And a lot of parents are just not properly training their kids in the ways of God. You know, Solomon said in Proverbs 22, verse 6, he said, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Train up a child. In the way. First of all, folks, there's a difference between training and teaching. Solomon didn't say teach a child in the way he should go. He said train a child in the way he should go. What's the difference? Um, you could teach me how to run a marathon. You could sit me down and use a blackboard and show me that, you know, there's a proper way to dress and to eat and 
There's, uh, there, even in the way you run, you know, you're landing on your heels, not on the ball of your foot because you'll put too much stress on your shins. And you could teach me all of that. But if you said, okay, now go run a marathon. No way. See, I have to train, see, to run a marathon. In other words, actually doing something like that requires the teaching and the training, doesn't it? I mean, I don't know about you guys, but in my generation, parents took this idea of training their kids a lot more seriously. Not that you don't, but I'm saying in general as a society. You know, when I was a kid, I remember I was about five or six, and my mom and I had been to the local Ben Franklin, you know, the five and dime store. And uh, we come walking out, and I'm unwrapping a candy bar. And she, she said, where did you get that? I said, I got in the store there. Did you pay for it? No. Well, why'd you take that? Well, I was hungry. They had a whole bunch of them in there. She marched me right back in the store, made me confess to the lady behind the counter what I'd done. Very humiliating experience, even for a six-year-old. Now, she wasn't worried about my fragile little self-esteem at that point. She was worried about my development as I got older. You got to nip this in the bud, right? But you know what? I never stole the candy bar again. See, she didn't want to just teach me about being honest. She wanted to train me when the situation presented itself and I showed myself in that situation to be dishonest and to steal something. She made sure that she trained me not to do it again. This, this is different, right, than just teaching. Train up your child in the way that he or she should go. And when they are old, not when they're old and decrepit, I'm saying. Excuse me for, I don't mean any disrespect to anybody, but... Not The Hebrew word means when they have whiskers. You know, when they hit puberty, talking about the boys. You teach your kids when they're young, and by the time they get to be teenagers, they're going to stay with what you've taught them. You wait till they get to be teenagers to try to teach them anything. Guess what? you got big problems. And that's why Solomon said in chapter 22, verse 15, foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of correction will drive it far from him. <gasps> The rod of courage. See, people get really upset. You think we should beat our kids? I never said you're to beat your kids. You don't beat your kids. No, of course not. I was telling the first service that my secretary, Linda, has trained many dogs, and she's actually trained one that became a champion. And she was telling me one day, you don't beat a dog when you're trying to train a dog. You take your two fingers, and if the dog does something wrong, a little on the snout, just a boom, and they learn rather quickly. You don't have to beat a dog to train it. You don't, you don't beat your children to train them. You know, when my kids were born, I went out somewhere. We, I don't know where it was we got it, but I got a, a paddle about this long that said Board of Correction on it. <laughs> and I kept it. They knew where it was. And uh, I probably showed it. But Angela never got spanked. She was a perfect kid. But, but I had my, my second one. He got his spankings, hers, and his older brothers. But So... And I probably showed the thing more than I used it, which was probably not good either. Um, but if they did something, they were constantly rebellious, you know, and that was it. I'd take it out, all right, bend over once in the butt, boom. That was it. You know, didn't punch, didn't, you know, once in the butt, boom. And that was all they needed. You know, now, some of you were probably horrified because you would never think of spanking your children. Because some people today think that that is just horrible. Violence begets violence, you know, and you spank your kids, you teach them to be violent. 
let me just appeal to your sense of logic. My generation believed in spankings, okay? Look where we are today. This young generation, they've grown up with no spankings for the most part. Who is violent and angry? Them or us? The Bible says if you love your child, you will discipline them speedily. Speedily. Susanna Wesley, you've all heard of Susanna. She had 17 kids, including two of the more famous ones, John and Charles Wesley, right? Here's what she said, and I quote, The parent who studies to subdue self-will or that rebellious spirit in their uh, child works together with God in the renewing and saving of a soul. The parent who indulges that child does the devil's work, makes religion impracticable, salvation unattainable, and damns his child body and soul forever. You see, Susanna believed that, look, when they're young, it's best to break that rebellion right away when it's easy to do. You wait till they're a teenager, forget it. And she believed not breaking their spirit, but breaking their rebellion so that they would become respectful to authority which starts in the home, right? Long before they stand before teachers and officers and so on, you teach them to respect your authority, they will take that respect for authority into their adult lives, and it will be applied across the board. If you don't, the Bible says you don't love them if you don't discipline them. A lot of parents in the name of love are not disciplining their kids at all or improperly disciplining them. And this is a real problem today. In fact, uh, some years ago, the Minnesota Crime Commission, in the face of a growing juvenile delinquency epidemic in their state, issued the following statement. They said, and I quote, Every baby starts life as a little savage. He is completely selfish and self-centered. He wants what he wants when he wants it. His bottle, his mother's attention, his playmate's toys, his uncle's watch. Deny him these wants and he seethes with rage and aggressiveness, which would be murderous were he not so helpless. He's dirty, he has no morals, no knowledge, and no developed skills. This means that all children, not just certain children, all children are born delinquent. If permitted to continue in their self-impulsive actions to satisfy each want, every child would grow up to be a criminal, a killer, or a rapist, end quote. And I know some parents would say, oh, not my little angel. <laughs> Folks, yes, they are as cute little angel but they are a fallen angel and you know what you got to train them how to be a godly person and yet more and more parents are putting their kids in daycare while they work more and more hours away from the home which means that nobody is there to steer the child away from delinquency to being a decent law-abiding member of society and the result is we have a generation of rebellious, selfish children who grew up to be dangerous, violent criminals. And that's something that we all pay for as a society. Just look at the gangbanger problems we're seeing today. Maybe you caught the news last night. Uh, some gangbanger killed some kid, young guy, and they had his body laid out at a church for the wake. And some other gangbangers pulled up outside and began shooting up the people outside. Five or six went to the hospital, one in critical condition. It's becoming absolutely crazy out there. And it all starts when the kids are little. You know, the Denver Post had an interesting article some time ago about a group of women who were trying to start a union 
to protect themselves from what they called the abusive little brats that people keep dropping off at daycare centers. These were daycare workers. They wanted to organize themselves into a union for protection. The article said that these children arrive with runny noses, chicken pox, bad manners, many haven't been potty trained, don't know table manners, and don't have any respect for adults or authority. And I said these daycare workers were so frustrated that they were going to try to ask for a union to get some help against these, the abuses by these working moms who, because of their careers, these ladies said, drop their children off at these daycare centers no matter what. Sick, drop them off. And so if the parents aren't around to properly train, not just teach, but train their children in godly moral behavior where the property and the rights of others are respected, you know what? Who or what is going to fill that void? If the parents are around to do what God has said, to teach their kids, kids are inquisitive. They have questions. They want to learn. If the parents are not around to guide them in the right path and to teach them the ways of the Lord, giving them loving discipline when they need it, if the parents aren't there to do that job, who or what fills that void? Well, very simply, kids are left to fend for themselves with much of the input they receive on, receive on social, moral, and spiritual issues coming from their peers, which is a classic case of the blind leading the blind. They get much of their social input, proper behavior in social settings from TV, violent video games, or their music, which is a big part of their development in the absence of godly adults who are going to take the time to train them. I mean, look what these kids today are strapping on their heads and listening to for hours every day. You're talking about hard rock, death rock, hip-hop, gangster rap. Then we wonder why they're so violent and angry. You listen to that stuff several hours every day, believe me, you're going to be angry. Coupled with the fact that nobody's home and you're always fending for yourself. I mean, it's, it's really frightening what's going on around us. Is there any solution? Yes. Let's get back to what God has said. He developed the family. He created it. He has given children to parents and told us what we're to do to properly train them. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 6. While you're turning there, just listen. When God originally called Israel to be his chosen people, he purposed that they would be a witness for him, that they would testify to the world of who he was, that they would be a light shining in the moral and spiritual darkness for the whole world to see. Of course, the light that God wanted them to, to be and to pass along to the world around them was the light of his truth, the light of his truth. And he said in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, where it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now that's where the message began. That was the truth that God wanted Israel to pass on to the world. The great theological truth that there was only one true and living God. There weren't many gods because they found themselves living, you know, in a very polytheistic environment. The world around them, especially Egypt, which at that time was the dominant world empire, had many, many gods. And God wanted his people to be a light to the world to let the world know, look, there aren't many, many gods that you can worship, which means there's not many ways that you can get to God or heaven. There's only one true and living God who made everything. And verse 5 gives the response that God expected 
from mankind in the light of this revelation. He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. This is what God wanted from the world, from mankind. This is what he expected. That we understand that there is only one God. And yes, that one God is made up of three separate and distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, which, by the way, comes through in verse 4, when it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That in the Hebrew is a word that means a compound unity. In other words, when Joshua and Caleb brought back the cluster of grapes from the promised land, it was one cluster made up of individual parts. We are one body here today, but we are made up of many members. The Jews had a word for one, which meant singular, uh, soul, you know, only one. Then they had a word that was one in a compound unity sense. That was the word used here. That our God is one God made up of, as we know, three separate and distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It was important that we understood that, and then that our response to this God would be that we would love him with all our heart and soul and strength that we would put him first, that we wouldn't try just to add him to our lives and try to, you know, you know, have our other gods, all the things that we people like to worship, money and pleasure and so on and so forth, but that God would be on the throne of our hearts, that we would love and worship him and desire to glorify him with our lives. And God wanted Israel to be a channel through which he could declare himself, through his word, of course, given to Israel, God's word was a light that he intended to use to draw people to himself. A light in the darkness, right? Even as the psalmist said in Psalm 119, 105, thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. God's word will light our way. If you're an unbeliever, it will light your way to God. People are groping around in spiritual and moral darkness today trying to find the truth but it doesn't have to be because God gave us his word, which is light, which will guide us back to him. And in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 6, it goes on and says, And these words I have commanded you today, uh, these words that I have commanded you today shall be in your heart, not just your, in your head. God knew information was important, and salvation always starts with information. Good information from the Bible, but it's not enough. If you only let what you hear today enter your head and stay there and not penetrate your heart where it changes the way you live, the way you think, the way you act, etc., it's empty information. So these words I commend you shall be in your heart, God said. That is the first step in passing on God's truth or light to this world, that we make a personal commitment from the heart. To love him above all else. Now, here's what I want to get to. And this is important. After the personal commitment came parental communication. This order is critical. You cannot pass to your children what you don't have. Because folks, most of what our kids learn about God from us is caught, not taught. They may not remember what you said. They'll never forget what you were. This is why it's so important not to play games with God, especially in your families, because we can come to church, put on the facade, make people think we're the most spiritual, the most godly, the most obedient Christians of anybody in the world. But you know what? The kids see what we really are in our own homes. 
Not that any of us don't blow it. I'm talking about utter hypocrisy. I'm talking about coming to church and saying one thing and going home and living totally different. So then God begins to talk about the responsibility of parents in communicating this truth to their kids. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 7, God said, You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. This is God's priority for the home, that God's truth about himself be passed from parent to child, and when that child grows up and becomes a parent themselves, then they pass God's truth on to the next generation and so on. You say, well, how is that done specifically? Well, God outlines it for us here. He first of all says we do it. We pass his truth down to the next generation, first of all, in speech. Notice verse 7 again. You shall diligently teach them what? My principles, my law to your children and shall talk of them. The knowledge and the ways and the works of God were to be constantly communicated to the kids. As he goes on to say here in verse 7, when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. What does that mean? Well, some have actually interpreted that to mean from the time the kid opens his eyes in the morning, you are badgering him with scripture verses. You're drilling into that child scripture verses. You are making them stand there and recite verses for hours. You are turning them into a little Bible robot. Not that it's wrong or bad to teach your kids scripture. But I don't believe the fire hose approach is what God wants in the training of children. Where you stick the fire hose in their mouth and just turn it on full blast. <laughs> Parents have done a lot of damage to their kids by trying to, you know, do that. So what is God saying here when he says, you know, constantly talk about me and my ways and my word to your kids when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. Well, I think that you're always looking for teachable moments. First of all, when you lie down, I think it's a beautiful thing for parents to read their children Bible stories or things before bed. I remember my kids, when they were little, we would sit, they were crawling to bed after we prayed, and I would read them Bible stories geared to kids. They loved that, you know. When you rise up, start our day with prayer. We want God to bless our day and lead us. Let's gather as a family and say a quick prayer and ask God to just take our lives today and use them for his glory. When you walk by the way, you know, what does that mean? As you're walking along the road or you're just going through life, look for teachable moments when you can use stuff to kind of show the goodness of God. And your child, who may be five, you know, says to you, Daddy, why is the sky blue and the grass green? And you say, well, son, I don't really know, but... I know God made them that way for a reason. Let's go home today. We'll go online and we'll find out why the sky is blue and the grass is green so that we can maybe better know God. That's a teachable moment, right? A teachable moment is when your child maybe, you know, doesn't want to share a toy with a playmate. You sit them down and you explain to them how that God is a very giving and gracious God. And he wants us to be kind and unselfish with others. You know, there are teachable moments that really impact your kids if you take the time to capitalize on them, which means you have to take the time to be with the children, which means you got to get your priorities straight. So many times we're out there because we think we're doing the best thing for our kids by making a lot of money and buying them bikes and iPods and everything else. We're not. What they really need is us. So first of all, teach them in speech. Secondly, teach them in silence. 
In verse 8, he said, You shall bind them, my laws, as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontless between your eyes. Now, the Jews took this literally and got into something called phylacteries. A phylactery was a small leather box that they literally tied on their hand or strapped to their forehead. And in this little leather box, there were scriptures written and stuffed in there, binding the word of God to my head and to my hands. Isn't that spiritual? And if you were really spiritual like the Pharisees, you would enlarge your phylactery, you know? And you'd have this box hanging off your head, and wow, you were really spiritual. Like the, like the gentleman I saw on my first trip to Israel... As we're flying to Israel, 12-hour flight, started at 10.30 in the evening from New York. By the time we almost got to Israel, the sun was coming up, 5 o'clock in the morning. And I see a lot of Orthodox Jews fly from New York to Israel all the time. Uh, and I saw a bunch of Orthodox Jews in this plane. And as the sun is getting up, I noticed they, they started getting up. They started putting on their prayer shawls, wrapping their phylacteries around their hands, strapping them on their heads. They went over to the window and faced towards Israel and opened up their prayer books and began to bob their heads as they prayed their prayers, you know, repetitious prayers. I was impressed by that. I thought, wow, that's piety, you know. Until I saw one of the guys, after he had finished going through his whole religious deal, came, sat down, looked at the earphones that he had been listening to the you know, to watching the movie and the point, wrapped them up, stuck them in his bag. And I thought, this is a perf- This is exactly what Jesus Christ was talking about when he talked about the, the hypocrisy of religion, how we can go through the motions and we can recite the prayers, we can put on the prayer shawls and the phylacteries and all this stuff to make people think we're so pious, and yet then, you know, we're out there stealing and lying and everything else. Again, your kids will, no- they may not f- remember what you said, they won't forget what you were. If you come to church and act all pious, and then throughout the week you're lying and stealing and helping them to, you know, not be honest or whatever, they're going to pick up on that. And finally, verse 3, or excuse me, number 3, we teach them, our kids, in speech, in silence, and thirdly, in surroundings. Verse 9, you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. They were to fill their homes with Scripture so that the children could see the law of God written throughout the entire house. Or in other words, God wanted the kids to grow up in a godly environment. A godly a house where the word of God dominated. Let me ask you something. What is filling your house today in the way of pictures, posters, magazines, and movies? What are you surrounding your kids with? Can they come home and play violent video games? Can they wa- I know Christians who let their kids watch R-rated movies. Of course, the world is even worse. I mean, I used to be a bus monitor, you know, and that was my job to kind of keep the kids quiet. I had some elementary kids on uh, my earlier runs. And we would talk, and I would enjoy talking to them, and they started telling me about the movies they watched. These were R-rated movies. I said, your parents let you watch R-rated movies? Yeah. So what? Because I don't even watch R-rated movies. Even Christian parents sometimes. The conviction is just not there. I I don't know why it's not there. To not expose children to things that the world wants to use to destroy their heart for God. I mean, this was so important, these verses in Deuteronomy. This was such an important thing to God that we train our kids in the way they should go, that God incorporated into his very law to tell parents, this is your responsibility. If you want the knowledge of me to be handed down from one generation to the next, you've got to be serious about the way you train your kids. And it starts with your heart, how you live in your home. 
And then from there you teach them in words, in actions, and in the surroundings that you expose them to. This is how God wanted it to be. So the families would always know God, obey God, and then could be blessed by God. That was his desire. Look, the light of God's truth is the only thing more powerful than the darkness of Satan's lies. The only thing. The only thing that is more powerful than Satan's lies is God's truth, his, his word, his light. Remember how John opened up his gospel? He said, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him. Without him, nothing was made that was made. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. And the light shone in the darkness. And the darkness could not extinguish it. But see, if we don't teach our kids the word of God, I guarantee you when they go out into the darkness of this world, which is getting ever more intense, it's going to eat them up alive. I can't tell you how many people are saying, talking about the percentage of Christian young people that grew up in Christian homes and Awanas and church and then go off to college and they lose their faith completely. They were taught. I'm not sure they were trained. There's a difference. I just want to end with this. I want you to understand that from the age of 5 to 18, from the age of 5 to 18, your child is going to spend, if they go to public school, 15,000 hours in a classroom being indoctrinated with secular humanistic philosophies. Now that's if they go to public school, but even then, we have some wonderful Christians who teach in the public school system. So I'm not talking against them. I'm just speaking in general terms now. Children from Christian homes who go to public school from the ages of 5 to 18 are going to spend 15,000 hours sitting in classrooms being indoctrinated with secular humanistic philosophies. And they're going to spend 17,000 hours in front of a television which the God of this world uses to brainwash our children into godless, hedonistic worldview. Now, we don't have time to talk about how Hollywood has orchestrated television to preach its godless agenda to young people because they know, just like Susanna Wesley knew, you either break a child when, that re when they're young because they're more open to correction but the devil knows that, and they're also more open to indoctrination. So from the time they're little with the cartoons, the enemy has orchestrated these things to preach a godless worldview to these kids. Now you're thinking to yourself, wait a minute, well, my kids go to Sunday school, they're okay. Let me tell you something. If you're faithful in bringing your kids to church every week, 50 weeks out of the year, two weeks vacation, we won't see you. If you're faithful in bringing your kids to church to sit for one hour in Sunday school class, for 50 weeks a year, from the time they're 5 to 18, they will have sat in Sunday school for 650 hours. That is hardly a match for the 32,000 hours of indoctrination they're going to receive in public schools and in front of a television set. Is it any wonder that children are growing up today, even Christian kids, with no heart for God or the things of God? That's because, folks, as a parent, you must train them throughout the week. You cannot expect the church to do your job for you one hour a week. It just won't happen. We are blessed to be able to teach your kids for an hour a week. We count it a privilege. But that should be the exclamation point on a week of teaching them about God. There is no way they're going to stand against the onslaught everywhere they look and they listen. 
But the devil is trying to pump into their brains a godless worldview. One hour a week in Sunday school isn't going to do it. You've got to be faithful in diligently teaching them about God throughout the week by first of all living it yourself, then using every opportunity to teach them about the Lord through life circumstances, and of course by surrounding them with godly stimuli, godly environment. Get rid of the secular video games that are demonic, violent. Get rid of the movie channels and the DVDs that are ungodly and fill your house with the Word of God, with worship. Have worship music playing. Let those kids know that this is a house that honors God. As for me and my house, Joshua said, we're going to serve the Lord. I guarantee you, if you do those things with your kids, they are going to have a foundation upon which God can build on for the rest of their lives. And if you don't, you're going to hand them over to the devil to do what he wants to do to them, and that's something we can't accept. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you, Lord, that your light, the light of your word is always more powerful than darkness. And Lord, if we will feed on it and teach it to our children and obey what you have said, Lord, you will give us grace. We will stand against the darkness and not be overcome by the darkness. And Lord, we pray that you would, Father, give us grace as parents to get our priorities straight, where we put our kids, our families, even above our desire for material things or a nice, bigger house to live in or whatever it might be, but that, Lord, you would give grace that we would diligently teach our kids about you and not just teach them, but to train them and to exemplify for them what godliness looks like in our lives. So, Lord, thank you. Father, we give you this. We ask you to bless our time over the next couple of weeks in this section that we're calling your design for a spirit-filled family. Father, we ask all this now in Jesus' name. Amen.